Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them, the Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, Farmers Insurance, eBay, and Ancestry.com, and I'm here with my guest today, Carolou Dietrich. Carolou is, is a former CMO and was the head of marketing for Atlassian when the company went public. She now advises hyper-growth startups like Build.com, 1Password, and Sprout. We met through CMO Coaches, where Carrie Lou is one of the most popular instructors, and she has a deep knowledge about B2B. Her earnestness can also needs to be called out because she will always tell you what she's really thinking, and it also makes her a great target for practical jokes. Welcome, Carrie Lou. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you, Mike. Today's topic, what is it really like to be in the B2B startup world as a marketer? And really, when you look at this, there's a lot of companies like, you know, that have started and now are giants in the B2B space. And they start as two folks in a garage, but a lot of them actually go bust or have trouble maintaining their success. The recent crypto meltdown serves as a really good example. So joining a high startup growth company means you need to think a lot differently than if you're joining General Mills or Farmers Insurance. Carrie Lou, let us in on how you think about marketing in this space just in general. Well, the most important thing as you underscored is picking the right company. I think it's really difficult in the startup world and it depends, there's different answers in like super small, medium and larger, right? Like if it's two guys um, in a garage in Palo Alto, um, you know, it's just one marketer and there's a high likelihood that the company isn't successful or gets acquired. Um, and then there's this kind of scale up phase that's maybe between 30 million and 100 million where the company has found product market fit and now is trying to become like a legitimate adult and they bring in, um, you know, more executives who have seen it and done it before. Um, and then there's this race to the IPO. And then there's obscurity in the post-IPO world where all of a sudden you're the small <laughs> fish in a big pond that is, you know, just trying to meet your um, quarterly estimates. Um, but, you know, even at those stages, a lot of companies plateau or get acquired. So it's it's definitely a, a job in the B2B startup world um, is definitely uh has a, a lot of unexpected twists and turns. And so marketing within that kind of follows the, the, the bigger macro trend of how the company is doing. So two, two follow-ons to that. One, how do you pick? Like if you, you know, if you decide I wanna go into the startup space, what do you look for that is a good marketing job versus a not so good marketing job? And then the second follow-up is, and then how do you enter and actually do marketing? Because you're probably it for the company. Yes. So two questions, fire away. I'm going to start with the first one, how do you pick? And I'm going to tell a little side story about my own career because our experiences influence our own trauma responses to picking jobs. A trauma response. If you, okay. can, if you can call it that. But, you know, my first job out of college was with this company called UUNet, um, which was like the number one internet infrastructure provider um, 
in the world at that time, 50% of the internet through the United States ran through our backbone. Um, and it was a great company, but then it got acquired by MCI, which got acquired by WorldCom. And WorldCom was a horrible company, right? One of the That's biggest right. bankruptcies yeah. of all time. Um, I left two weeks before we declared bankruptcy and it took me three years to get my last commission check. So right out of the gates, I thought, okay, great company, horrible company, doesn't matter how good a salesperson I am if the company has massive fraud and implodes. Um, and then I've worked for smaller companies and bigger companies, and I actually ended up at Atlassian. Um, after WorldCom, I went to this small company called Plumtree. We were acquired. I worked with a bunch of phenomenal folks. We got acquired by Oracle. I went and got this awesome advertising job where I did sports advertising and movie advertising and wrote ads for the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But some of my old colleagues were at the small company named Atlassian and they recruited me to go work for them. I thought it was a career limiting move. It turned out to be like a career defining move. Hey, just let me, what did Atlassian do? Cause I'm not sure all our listeners know. Right. So at the time Atlassian was a dev developer tools collaboration company. So it was software to help developers collaborate better as they were writing software and code. So it was like small, dorky, deep tech. Um, you know, I was like on, you know, writing an NBC ad for um, America's Cup uh, when Larry Ellison had sailboats and they wanted me to go to this small team with like no budget, a horrible brand, um, quirky CEOs from Australia. Um, and I ended up going because two of my favorite colleagues were there. And I thought that like super smart people on the inside think this is a rocket ship. Um, and, you know, working at Oracle, there was stability, but some of that stability was boring. Like after five years, we were doing some of the same things we'd been doing before. So <clears throat> I picked Atlassian. It was amazing. Um, then I picked a company after Atlassian that was not amazing, that was like poorly financed. And basically the last several years have been a quest to figure out how do you pick the right company in the startup world. Um, and I think that it's thinking like an investor and looking at all the things VCs or investors would look at, which is, you know, total market, um, like TAM, we call it. What is that? Yeah, total addressable market. Total yeah. addressable market. Um, you know, the net promoter score, like does this, do people really like this product? The financials, how long is their burn rate before they're going to run out of money or need to fundraise? Um, the quality of the CEO and your relationship with them. Like, do you really believe that they're strategic? Um, and then I think only after all those business questions, there's the like, how do they think about marketing? Because if all those business questions are a no, it doesn't matter if they love marketing. If the company's not going to be successful, marketing can't be successful. So let's say they make it through all your, your hurdles and the, and the burn rate means they have enough cash that they're not going to go out of business soon because they have enough cash sitting around that they can keep investing in the business for, you know, at least a year or two years. How do you check out the marketing chops of the company and what they want? Because a lot of times you're going to be the first person in or you're going to build this from scratch. How do you go about asking that? So I I generally don't take first person jobs. I think there's different things that they need at different stages. So when they're just coming out of the gates, they need like a grinder. They need a good senior manager or director who can kind of optimize their website and write some, some quick press releases um, and make some sales decks for the sales teams. 
Um, and then as you get a little bit bigger, right, you start building out a team of five and then a team of 10 and a team of 50 and 100. Um, I think that what's really important is, is that you're, you are the lifeblood of the company. You're keeping it alive. Like the reason I didn't go to Atlassian when my colleagues went there originally was because I wanted to have babies and I wanted to not have the company go under because I wasn't providing enough pipeline for the leads. Like I needed to go into an Oracle where the company wasn't going to fold if I didn't do my job. At a small company, you you, you got to really stay focused on like what is bringing in the right leads. And so I think there's a much heavier ratio of demand generation um, and product marketing, really like making sure you're positioning the right product to the right audience in a really crystallized way. Um, then there is kind of more brand and experience things that happen as you get bigger that really differentiate you and get the company value. So you come in and you're at one of these stages, which means you are coming in, Kara Lewis, the person that is going to pivot the company to the next level of marketing. How do you figure that out and how do you gauge what the company needs when you get there? Like, what do you what do you do? Because this is, you know, not that many people get an insight into B2B and surely very few people get an insight at a comp to a company pivot point like you have, not just through your career, but also through all your consulting. How do you figure that out? Like, tell me some of your secrets. So it's funny because I haven't worked in consumer, but I presume it's it's similar. Like you start by looking at the market, what's happening on the overall macro market trends. So one of the reasons Atlassian was so successful is because we were riding this massive change in the way software was developed. Software used to be developed in this waterfall format where you'd come up with this big plan. It would take two years. At the end of two years, you'd burn the CD, you'd mail the CD out, and then it would have all these problems with it. <clears throat> And then you'd have all these bugs and then you'd, you'd roll out the CD for 1.1 and 1.2 and 1.3, but <clears throat> there was this long lead time and, the, and, and it was ineffective. Over two years, the needs of the users might change. And so the whole world of software development was changing from this waterfall to something called Agile, which is working in these quick sprints. Um, and so Atlassian like, was the leader in this Agile space and was riding this massive wave of software becoming so important and Agile becoming the methodology that people would use to develop software. And so long story there, but I think you need to be in a, a rising tide to be at a phenomenal company. And then, and then what you do inside of that is trying to figure out like, how do those users, what do they really want from your company and how do you talk to them and delight them? And so I think a lot of like market research, user listening to the users, talking like researching the competitors and what they're talking about um, is all kind of the upfront work around really understanding the product marketing strategy. And then from the product marketing strategy, you go to the demand generation strategy, like where do those users spend their day? What kind of documents do they like to use in researching if they're going to buy? Um, and then I think- can you, can you give us an example of that for Atlassian or one of the other companies? Because you know, I think you can you can get the research probably by asking your customers or setting up you know formal research like you do in consumer. But now you now you're talking about demand gen. How, how do you give us a live example of how that might work if you can? So, business users have become more like consumers 
over the course of my career, which means that they do much more of their research online. And, and there's some statistics that say up to 80% of a buyer's research has been done online before they contact you. And so they're looking at review sites, they're talking to colleagues that have used similar products, they're coming to your website and reading the website. Um, in business to business, some of the common tools that we use are webinars. So like, here's a webinar, you know, potentially podcasts, although they're they like are. Here's a podcast. harder to track. They're like podcasts are kind of for insiders. Like you're looking or white papers were really common for a long time. Yeah. I've written many white papers. Um, microsites that kind of have some sort of like data insight. Um, ROI calculators where they plug in their numbers and calculate if they rolled out this kind of software, what kind of returns should they see and why. Um, maturity benchmarks, like how do they, how does their tech maturity relate to other companies' tech maturity and where do they need to, to focus? So there's all these kind of assets that, that you create on in content to try to engage with people. And I think about marketing in B2B as this, um, as this dartboard and in the middle is like your own customers like they are your ideal customer you want to sell them more stuff you know how to reach them they listen to you because they care and then you go out from there and you have people who might be in the market for what you're selling but um, don't know about you yet and then you go out to like people that you're trying to educate that aren't in the market yet and don't know you and so you have different content for each of those layers to try to bring more and more people into the center of the dartboard um, and, and, you know, the argument in B2B is this like intimate conflict between trying to track everything that every person touches versus having freedom for them to research and then contact you when they're ready to talk to a salesperson or do a, a demo or have a, a, you know, a free, um, <clears throat> an installation if there's like more integration in their system versus like self-service usage. Um, so I think that's kind of the B2B demand gen model is from this content to a demo to supporting the sales team as they try to close the deal. Got it. So some B2B founders have reputations for not really caring about marketing or trying to reduce marketing to a single number or just a, a little kind of tracking sheet like they might um, other things in the business. How do you manage that situation in the space so it's tricky because in in tech startups there's a lot of first-time founders these aren't professional right. ceos that have done it three times before so they don't know what good looks like and they don't really know about it and they actually don't know how to coach their marketers to be more effective um, and then you also have a lot of marketers who are in the biggest jobs of their lives who also wish or miss having a boss who like knew how to do it better than them and tell them how to you know debate about how to do better marketing um so you know i think it's a dual prong approach and part of it is is educating yourself and having a really good plan and just knowing in your heart that it's the right balance and that you know i mean one of the reasons i became a cmo coach and an advisor to startup CEOs and CMOs is because I didn't have confidence in my marketing plans when I was at Atlassian because I always felt like maybe there was something better. There was no one to talk to about it. We were trying to do something totally new. Um, and when I look back at my plans, they were really good and I didn't <laughs> have confidence. You and were so amazing. Well, I mean, 
you know, now I'm like all these years later, I, I talked to dozens of, of like illustrious B2B marketing CMOs. I know I have context and I look back and I think like I approached that in the right way, but I was so insecure about it. I couldn't necessarily deliver it to the CEO with the confidence that I needed all the time. So I guess this is kind of a twist on your question, which is, I mean, I think you have to have a good plan and then you have to have the confidence to have other people trust you in that plan. And that I do think this is super important that if you don't have the confidence, the company will take it from you. Um, and, and, and yeah, and and I think it's hardest for people who are up and coming in their career, like Mike Linton has a problem with his CEO and calls all of his CMO friends and they chat him up for hours about how he should solve this problem. And if you're a new up and coming CMO, you might not have people who are more experienced than you or have the kind of experience you need to spend as much time with you as you need to have the confidence to sell what might be the right plan. Yeah. Um, so again, I basically have become the person that I wanted when I was at Atlassian. Um, and then the whole reason why my business has changed from coaching CMOs to coaching CEOs and CMOs, because at a hyper growth startup, and I focus between 30 million and 500 million in revenue, one of the biggest problems in marketing is the CEO trusting what the marketer is saying yeah. and the marketer selling something with conviction. And so by advising both of them, I can help the marketer have better plans and I can help the CEO have confidence in those plans because I've seen the context of all of the pieces. Um, and generally the marketers are on track. It's not that they're like wildly um, off base. It's just that they haven't done this challenge exactly before um, and there's no right answer. Well, like, I do think uh, spend on brand. There is no right more than one person, more than one percent, and less than fifty percent. And I think this is a CMO trap of thinking there is a right answer in any business. There's never a right answer. There's just a good direction. And and I think one of the things that you, you want, or, or at least I want CMOs to do, is you do your best and then you you back your best because there's always going to be better no matter what you do. But you're there. You might as well do your best and see what happens. And if you're doubting it all the time, you're actually never going to do your best. You're going to always be questioning yourself. And that is really, really tough. And it can um, be really dangerous in, you know, I think marketing is a tough discipline because everyone thinks they can do it. And I know you've told a story like, well, I get emails, <laughs> I get direct mail. So I'm going to tell you what I think about this. And if you take that and you multiply it by the harshness of developers, like developers are the people who when originally were online trolls who go into forums <laughs> they mean things because they're they're not you know like my husband works in in restaurants he's a chef and there's this very distinct front of house and back of house personality type front of house is outgoing they like interact well with the clients i mean the customers um they're they're friendly they're generally more optimistic and back of the house they're like they're writing code. They do They're a great job, code. but they do not want to interact with people. Like, in fact, they hate the people. They just want to do the best work on their work that they can. And so developers are this strange, like they, they don't pull punches. So when you're in marketing in a developer company, um, you hear exactly what they say. And having that inner strength and conviction, I think is, is like the secret <laughs> to um, sustainability. I feel like there's a story behind this. That you would what uh, maybe a funny story or 
you know, you already shared the story about you. Uh, you is there another story you want to share with our, our listeners as we as we move towards the the end of the show? Well, I just think it's hard to be a marketer because you're managing the most diverse group of people at the company. Like if you're in finance and you're managing all the finance departments, like there's more personality alignment than if you're a marketer and you're managing designers who are basically artists. Right. And you're managing like technical evangelists who are also developers. Um, and you're managing public relations people who are, you know, people who are journalists who, you know, want to make more money. And they're these very different personalities. So I had a hard time trying to protect my employees, right? Like an artist needs to be creative and have ideas. And when everyone, you know, is inbound and criticizing them, it's hard for them to like flourish to their greatest um, challenges. And so I think the funny story is just figuring out as a manager how to also encourage people in the midst of criticism to be their best selves. Um, yeah, so I, I, very yeah. honest and not funny. <laughs> and stay out of the back of the kitchen is what I also heard you say. <laughs> uh, Just so no, last, no last, back of the kitchen is the back of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. So uh, you got to go pick up the food. So last question, what piece of practical advice would you give our listeners, um, you know, as, as we finish this session? I feel like I've been sprinkling it through because I think that the most important thing is having a really good plan and filtering that plan with people that um, are experts that you can trust. Um, and when you're the leader at a startup company, those people are not inside your company. And that's very different from being in a big company where there's lots of experts all around you. And so it's really important to kind of build the right relationships or hire the right people, right? Like I hired a coach who was just a coach and not a marketer or a startup person. And she kept asking me like, and how does that make you feel? And I would say, it makes me feel like I want to talk to someone who knows how to do my job because <laughs> I'm much more confident if I knew I was doing my job right. And so I think hiring the right people or building the right relationships to surround you to know that your plans are right and then having the confidence to deliver them um, is is like one of the most important parts to, to not just being successful in your career, but being happy, right? I mean, living in um, self-doubt is um, can be like a lot of tumultuousness for people. Um, and so I think that's tough. Good word, tumultuousness. Uh, so I don't know I, I think, Are you going to check I that think, in my dictionary? <laughs> I think good advice for any, any CMO and actually anybody in business. So Carrie Lou, thank you very much for being on the show. And thanks everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. We have other shows out there, including what your agency wants to tell you, but won't, why the short shelf life of CMOs parts one, two, and maybe three is the CMO species headed for extinction and is marketing's obsession with measurement destroying the function. So be sure to tune in for more. And hey, all of you marketers, stay safe out, stay safe out there. This is Mike Linton at CMO Confidential signing off. Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your work days and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? 
Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership Podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain. 